We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. reclamation actually i'm gonna slightly veer us to the side just because like i feel like so much of this book is also reclamation reworking of other fairy tale elements as well i mean like the dragon certainly is very much tolkien grabbing at so many dragon fairy tales and and mashing them into smaug same actually with the whole scene with Gollum. i mean doing riddles with a sort of malicious fairy-esque creature big fairy tale trope. So I think it's interesting the ways in which, especially in the beginning, we're built this very fairy tale-esque story and the ways in which then real life increasingly creeps into it and we can't escape from it. I mean, I think in terms of, of creating the genre of fantasy, I'm not sure everyone took this lesson from Tolkien, that you can do fantasy and still have some not the perfect fairy tale ending. The ending of The Hobbit is not necessarily good. <laughs> I mean, it's good for Bilbo. Which I love, actually. Oh, no, I was going to say I love it, too. I think it's interesting, too, to think about this as, like, the children's book version of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Oh, they run into trolls. Oh, they run into goblins. Oh, he's doing riddles with this creature. Which is not to say it's not good, but it's got that very episodic quest narrative sort of thing going on. And I think a lot of times we think of Lord of the Rings as being one of the first to like kind of turn that on its head in the end where like you go on <laughs> this massive journey with Frodo and uh turns out he doesn't succeed in the end. <laughs> it's interesting the ways in which the Hobbit does sort of the same exact little turn. You go on this journey with Bilbo and although it's not Bilbo who doesn't see- succeed. Sammy snakes us in words he's hissing all the time. Like the secondary character of Thorin, who you, I don't know, it's, it's, he doesn't get much time. But you might feel slightly fond of. You sympathize with his quest to get back his family home. And then in the end, he falls prey to greed. He starts making really stupid, bad decisions. And then ends up, you know, dying and never really getting, getting to see what he had worked so hard for. Which, like, I think is such a crucial change for fantasy is to introduce this element of, like, realism and that things don't always work out in the end. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting the way, for so many years, fantasy following this did not take that lesson to <laughs> And it's only more recently that we've seen authors actually re-pick back up on that, um, only within probably the last 20 or so years. Yeah. Oh, man, I want to talk about Thorin's death so much. You can't see it, but I'm bouncing in excitement because I just I think it's just so fascinating. I'm just going to nerd out here. So go for it. The whole thing was smog, the dragon and the gold. And that's basically lifted directly from Beowulf. The second half of Beowulf, there's a dragon who has taken over this horde of gold. And the narrative of Beowulf tells us that it is the treasures from a civilization that died out centuries ago and is completely forgotten. In a lot of ways, The Hobbit feels like almost like a fan fiction of that, where it's like, what would happen if somebody from that forgotten civilization tried to come back and reclaim it? And that is basically Thorne's mission, is to reclaim his heritage. 
he feels compelled to take back this land, even though he has no plan to actually make it happen, which I I also think I can see your criticism. I actually like that, that Thorin is just bumbling along. He wants to play the hero, but he doesn't actually know how to. He has no idea what it means to be a king. You really think a crown gives you power? Because he's so far removed from that world. And so his death at the end, and I think in a lot of fantasy, it would be played out as heroic. And he would, there'll be somebody saying, oh, he will always be remembered, you know, blah, blah, blah. His, His memory will be cherished. We'll put up a statue of him. But no, there's this fascinating line to me where um, it's detailing which of the dwarves have survived. So it says, of the 12 companions of Thorin, 10 remained. Feely and Keely had fallen defending him with shield and body, for he was their mother's elder brother. The others remained with Dane, for Dane dealt his treasure well. And I mean, I don't think kids would pick up on this. But what a way to undercut the heroism of Thorin. There there wasn't any deep down loyalty to Thorin. It's just that he promised them they would all get one fourteenth of the share of gold when they reclaimed the mountain. And knowing the character of Dane, and they're like, well, we're going to stick with this guy because we know that he'll look out for us. Which... God, what a way to just just make everything about Thorne's death and journey just feel completely empty. For some people, that's very depressing. But for me, it just hits me right in the heart. And I'm like, oh, it's all meaningless. Oh my God. I love it. Okay, wait, I gotta fight back against you a little bit because I think they still do a little bit of the fantasy thing of like, he'll be remembered forever. They built him a tomb sure, and they sure. put the Arkenstone on top of it. And they're like, this will forever stay with him. Like, I, I think there's still a little bit of that. And also just in terms of the other dwarves turning to Dane, like, part of it too is like, Thorn's dead. Where else are they going to go? The supreme leader is dead. Long live the supreme leader. I'm not saying that that undercutting isn't happening because I, I agree it's there to some extent. But I I think it walks the line between the more typical fantasy veneration, but also these sort of like little moments undercutting that. I mean, I think the fact that like, so the death scene is very, I think, typical fantasy where it's like he's held on just long enough to have this conversation with Bilbo and then he expires (laughs) of his wounds. But the moment afterwards of Bilbo just going off and curling up in a corner and crying, I think is is an undercutting, again, of that heroic moment. Like, you know, instead of, you know, at the end of Beowulf, after he dies, all of them giving grand speeches about Beowulf. Yes. We don't get, uh, yeah, a grand speech from someone about anything. We get Bilbo crying in the corner. So, yeah, I think there's a way that Tolkien kind of has it both ways. I guess for me, it's the idea that Thorne wanted to reclaim this mountain for his family. And in the end, he failed Mm -hmm. in that quest because his line has ended. The civilization that he was trying to recreate is over. Yeah, he's celebrated and he's placed in this tomb with the Arkenstone, but it is now buried. This civilization, which 
in a lot of ways seems to be represented by the Arkenstone is buried with him. I mean, they make such a huge deal of the Arkenstone and the fact that it goes with his his corpse. So telling for me of just what has been lost. There's also just an interesting, I mean, Tolkien is clearly so interested in this, again, thinking about Lord of the Rings, the idea of whether you can ever return to a place you have lost or left behind. The answer that he gives with Thorin is, is no, no. If you try and go back and reclaim the past, you will fail and die. We we get some more optimistic things. I mean, I think there's certainly something there with like Bill going back to find his home being sold and he's able to buy most of it back. But for instance, he like never gets back the silver spoons or something. <laughs> he can't quite get it back the way he had it before. Even with the character of Bard, who again is descended from these people and is looking to maybe reestablish Dale in some form. Uh, although we never really get to see that. I think, yeah, Tolkien's very fascinated with this idea that I think he'll return to with both the hobbits in the end of The Lord of the Rings, but also I think Thorin's a kind of proto-Aragorn in a way. Like, it's... Yes! Like, Aragorn, if he failed. All the ways you wish you could be, that's me. I look like you want to look, I f*** like you want to f***. I am smart, capable, and most importantly... I'm free in all the ways that you are not. And I'm curious, like, obviously I know Aragorn's entire story, but I'm I'm curious to read how it's handled in the actual books and see the return of the king under the lens of, of thinking about him in contrast with Thorin. Bard is also kind of a proto-Aragorn. Yes. And it's like, you're right, because we do get a lot of description of how Lake Town is kind of built next to the ruins of another town. And Dale is just completely obliterated. It does describe where there is this kind of schism that forms between the master of Lake Town and Bard. And there's a suggestion that that never really truly fully recovers. So it's like this sort of degradation of a golden era. And there will just inherently be something that is lost in the process. You can only move forward. And I think that Tolkien does that in such a nice and subtle way. You get a feeling that things have changed. It's so wonderful. (laughs) It's so wonderful to read a story where it's like, yeah, Bilbo kind of does have his happily ever after. And there is a very nice scene with Balin and there's a sense of lifelong friendships formed from this. But it's like, It's a happily ever after with an asterisk, which becomes a very big asterisk with Lord of the Rings. But I think just for the sake of this book, we kind of have to read it just within the book itself. Like, Thorn is lost. Feely and Keely are lost. Uh, Even Smog is lost. And you get a sense that with the death of Smog, you've lost something incredible and fantastical from another world even though it's a terrible part of that other world, it is now lost forever. At the end, when he's killed, his corpse uh, sinks to the bottom of the river and his bones are just left there. And everyone's too afraid to come claim the jewels that have fallen off from his body. They think it's cursed, which feels like, oh my God, there are dogs barking outside for like the last half hour and I'm so... You shut the... Up, dog. There's a sense of like 
Smog is this relic from some past time where curses were a real thing. There's nothing cursed about him. It's very clear that it is just a corpse. And if you went there, I guess theoretically something bad might happen to you because we do learn, as you said in the summary, that the master ends up penniless and dying out in the wilderness after being a greedy motherfucker and taking a bunch of gold for himself. So maybe the gold and the jewels and gems are cursed. But I don't know. It's You get this sense of loss. And especially because Tolkien, as a narrator, is also writing this as if this is the past of England, which is obviously his whole conceit. But he mentions multiple times, like, back then when he has this whole idea that the hobbits, like, still exist, but they hide from us now. Like, this was back when, you know, they didn't have to hide. And there's constantly the narrators interjecting that. So, yeah, you get the sense of loss not only within the world of the story and the transition period that the world of the story is in, but also our world in comparison to that world. Yeah, and obviously this is through the revision, but even freaking Gollum has a sense of this lost past. It never goes too explicitly into it, but at least in our versions, or at least in my version, I don't know if it's the same for you, but it talks about how when they're doing these riddles, there's one riddle that Bilbo says where the answer is like honey or fruits or something like that. And Gollum has a hard time from it because he's so far removed from a time where he would eat that sort of food and be in those sort of kind of tranquil pastoral scenes. And the way he answers it is that he vaguely remembers spending time with his grandmother. And so you get a sense there's this deep family history, even for Gollum, that's just suggested. You know, if you want to talk about iceberg theory, oh, baby, is it on display in this book? Because there are just so many historical events, histories, and legends that are referenced that create a sense that there's this huge, huge world and huge, huge history that you're not privy to, but you can feel it. And so like, this is a deeply sad book when you really think about it and dig into it, which it's just so, so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, just the number of times that like Moria gets referenced, which I wasn't expecting. I was like, oh goodness, why does Gimli try and lead them to the mines of Moria? If this is the backstory, like, maybe we should be thinking about this. But yes, and it never gets necessarily fully explained. You just know there was some sort of, like, dwarf-goblin war in Moria. And it's something that's, like, very present for both cultures. And, I mean, just, like, the finding of particularly the swords, um, Gandalf's sword, Thorin's sword, and Bilbo's swords in the troll's cache, I guess? Yeah. And these being, again, like artifacts of, you know, people long dead, of a culture that clearly died in order to lose these. Like, there's something very interesting about that. I, I, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to talk about Fellowship of the Ring, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna refrain. Well, I think it's... We can talk about it when we (laughs) read it. I mean, I don't know what you want to say about it, but I think it's fair to... I think I I really want to just put a pin in it to think about it in terms of um, the first couple of adventures that the dwarves and Bilbo go on versus the first couple for our hobbits, um, specifically 
Ugh, Tom Bombadil. Um, but also the Barrows. Like, I was thinking about the Barrows so much mm. during all of this. So, okay. pin in that. Let's talk about it for fellowship. Well, maybe we can discuss into a bit more detail the character of Smog. God, is is Smog just the vainest character? He. <laughs> this is basically how Smog introduces himself. Quote, I kill where I wish, and none dare resist. I laid low the warriors of old, and their like is not in the world today. Then I was but young and tender. Now I am old and strong, strong, strong. Thief in the shadows, he gloated. My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are like swords. My claws spears. The shock of my tail are thunderbolts. That's pretty metal. <laughs> this is a tangent, but uh, the actor who played Saruman, Christopher Lee, loved these books. But it's also worth noting that Christopher Lee uh, had, as a side hustle, appearing in metal songs, just singing in them. I shed the blood of the Saxon man. 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 So, connect the dots here. He has a mind of metal. He also was like, oh my god, he was the coolest dude. He was like a spy. He was a spy. You should look at, like, just Wikipedia him. It's a fascinating, fascinating tale. <laughs> His entire life. He was like James Bond, basically. The name's Bond. Saruman. Bond. Basically. But as much as I would love to do a Christopher Lee podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you brought him up. I was I, just well, that's fair. giving the listeners the information they needed to go find more. What a great man. In some ways, Smog plays the standard villain, but there's there's an edge to him that I don't think is present. To kind of compare it back to Atlantis with the character of Rourke. Rourke is obviously a greedy dude, and, and in any other Disney movie that would be played up to be like, hee 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 hee, I'm greedy, you know, but it's not played that way. And I feel like it's the same way here where Smog is clearly very greedy. He's guarding this this cave of gold that he has no practical use for. But there's an intelligence to him that like makes his character terrifying. It's not so much that he can literally burninate everybody if he wants to. But what makes him so terrifying in the scenes with Bilbo is that when Bilbo's trying to riddle with him... Smog is equally capable and, in fact, is much more capable than Bilbo. He's not just some dumb beast that if you kill him, that's it. It kind of resonates. And maybe that gets back to, like, his corpse being in the lake and feeling like it's cursed. It's like, yeah, because he was this larger-than-life force, not just physically, but mentally and almost spiritually even this terrifying legendary creature and it's just so cool morgan yeah i mean i think the the nice thing about and i i 
I'm trying, I've been trying to think of, like, the actual dragon fairy tales that, like, Tolkien was probably drawing on, because, like, yeah, there's the one in Beowulf, but that, that one never speaks. But, like, I know there's this, this history of the tricky dragon. I just can't think of actual examples. But what I did think about when I was contemplating it that I think is, is interesting is the way in which the scene with Smaug turns the normal, um, heroic encounter on its head a little bit in that normally so there's the whole thing in Beowulf where like Beowulf spends a lot of his time bragging or vaunting as I believe is the term about like how awesome he is he's like yeah (laughs) I swam so far and also I murdered all these eels while I was doing it and and you're like oh my god calm the down Beowulf but it's very much the same thing Smaug does in this scene is that he's vaunting which is like typically the way of a hero kind of setting themselves up I can't think of and maybe I just haven't read it Tolkien knows a lot more old English sources than I do Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you don't normally get to see the villain vaunt so it is cool that like we had him kind of lurking in the background of the entire story, just kind of being there, an ominous presence we know we're going to have to face. And then in the end, when Bilbo, our hero, is coming to face him, Bilbo does get a little bit of his own vaunting. He gets to, like, have the moment of being like, I am this and this, and kind of riddling with Smaug, as you said. But that Smaug also gets to kind of do this return vaunting. And is the one who, although Bilbo technically gets the last word. Yeah. <laughs> if he hadn't decided to go take down Linktown, Bilbo and the doors would have died. He traps them in. If he had just waited on the other end, <laughs> they would probably be dead. <laughs> I don't see them coming out of that alive. Yes. So there's something very interesting about the way Smaug is, is set up as a villain And therefore, there is something a little dissatisfying. Like, yes, there's the Thrash who sends the information to Bard, which, like, is a thing. So, like, it does feel set up, but it also feels, like, too conveniently easy for Smack to die after all that buildup. Like, I, to some extent, enjoy the trope reversal of, like, Bilbo not being the one to do it. And I don't think it would have been in character for, like, Bilbo to necessarily outright slay a dragon. (laughs) Yeah. But... There is something very anticlimactic about the whole thing, which is like, I haven't, I've only seen the first Hobbit movie, not the second two. And um, I didn't see the second two because the first one is bad and I heard it got worse from there. But I do understand the impulse to make a bigger character out of Bard, which I know they did in the movies. Yeah. Otherwise, it feels like you've had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of setup and really good setup for very little payoff. Yeah, I I think we can argue the effectiveness of that because I think the anticlimactic nature of Smog's death is part of the point where he is this massive creature. He is horrifying, but it is, it's his vanity that is his undoing because he thinks that he is impenetrable and unstoppable he sort of believes his own bragging and that's ultimately what is his undoing and so to be brought low by a single arrow from a single man i feel it almost presages what will later happen in lord of the rings when a single lowly hobbit 
brings about the end of one of the most deadly forces of evil in the history of Middle Earth. Yeah, but so much work goes into that. Whereas I feel like it may be, I, I don't mind Bard taking him down with a single arrow. My issue is that it's like the very convenient thing of like the thrush tells him and then like, I wish there had been something about like, I don't know, either like Bilbo and the crew are able to get that information out or Bard and his team have to do more work to get, you know, somehow get Smaug to do like a barrel roll so they can like aim at that part, right? Because that part's going to be decently covered by his body. But it's like, no, he gets that information. He fires, Smaug dies. I just wish a little more effort had been put in. I don't mind the actual means of death. I mind that, like, it's very easy. Like, it's it's very, very easy in the end. Bard gets that information. He has one arrow left. He fires that arrow and he wins, you know? Yeah. It's a little too convenient for me. All too easy. Like, if you're going to do the anticlimax of him being brought down this very simple way and not having our crew be an all involved and having it be this one random guy. I want it to at least be a little bit more work for him. <laughs> Let's spend the time. Well, to be fair. And I think that, like, there's the better anticlimax of the end battle that we don't get to see any of, pretty much. I, I guess I, I want, I just wanted a little more, <laughs> a little more work there. When it is done, and Gotham is ashes. Then you have my permission to die. To be fair, 25% of the town does die. The narrative does go into pretty great detail about how all the other attempts to strike at Smaug are useless. And people are running away. And there's this very chilling note about how Smaug is just like, Haha, go ahead and try to run away. I'll just hunt you down later and make a game of it. Yes, I get what you mean. It is very convenient that with the last arrow that Bard has, he just so happens to get the information at that very second, and then one minute later uses that same information to bring Smog down. Yeah, it's a little convenient. But I personally don't mind it because I think... It's saying something really interesting about this sort of larger theme that Tolkien is getting at of the past dying, this sort of grand, mythical, legendary past going away. What can be a more appropriate symbol of that than this massive, huge, unstoppable force of evil being taken down by a mere man with a mere arrow. I know I'm not going to convince you, <laughs> but I think it's interesting. <laughs> well, I think that it's a, just a case of, I mean, we talked earlier about how Tolkien kind of has it both ways in certain circumstances. And in some ways, I think that works. In other cases, I don't. I think he tries to have it both ways on a number of things and doesn't necessarily uh, get there on those. So like, you know, you if you're going <laughs> to undercut the fantasy tropes or i guess like he's not really undercutting fantasy tropes at this point fairy tale tropes is probably the better word for it if you're undercutting fairy tale tropes then like you can't you like use that fairy tale trope to undercut it you know like the very convenient arrow at the last minute i don't know i feel like that's just one of those things where it feels like out of place in what he's doing for me 
And then, like, I think the other thing, which we haven't talked about a huge amount, but, like, this is supposedly a book for children. <laughs> and uh-huh. I don't know at what age you read this, but I was I was trying to imagine. I was like, okay, let's say, you know, I was a child. You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea of what you're talking about. Like, how would I have felt about it? And I tried to think about, like, if, if it was read out loud to me a chapter each night or something like that, how I would have felt about it. And there are parts of it i think are are a children's book Mm -hmm. but there are certainly parts of it where he's like i would like to have a children's book but also not have it be for children (laughs) Uh and i'm like talking like i don't know what age of child this is for i guess it's probably the best way to put it i don't know necessarily what the demographic is he was aiming at and i'm not sure he knew either other than as you said he wrote this for himself a hundred percent that's what I was going to say is I don't think he really cared and which I think gives it an appeal that can spread far and wide since he's not writing it necessarily for a specific age in mind. This is not a Goosebumps situation or even a Chronicles of Narnia situation, which are both very much intended for children. This is a book that I feel like as a kid, you can come to and be like, whoa, trolls, goblins, dragons, dwarves elves wow big wow but you can also come back to it as an adult and appreciate perhaps more of the darker undertones but on the other side of that i think that regardless of what age you're reading at you always feel like there's a certain part of this that is not for you if that makes sense you know there are certain parts of this i was reading and i was like that is for children (laughs) and that is why it is like this yeah and it didn't feel like that was there for me as an adult reader whereas i'm sure like if you read this as a child you're reading it and you're like huh i don't really get that or that doesn't feel like it's it's for me and that's always the hard thing with trying to do things that have it both ways that way like i think there's certainly if you look at like some of the pixar movies there are moments in those where you're like you have not quite watched the fine line of doing book for children and adults. I love the Pixar movies, so this was not a slam. Oh, we could slam like, Pixar. If, I think they're trash now, but whatever. Oh my god. D- no, don't come at Pixar right now. Like, <laughs> like, there's certainly Pixar movies that aren't my favorite, and I don't think every single one is genius, but they do really good work. Don't come at Pixar. Hello. Casey here, interrupting the podcast. No, I know, but... As usual. So Morgan and I go on a rant here about Pixar that somehow turns into a sweeping and convoluted discussion on capitalism and the role of the proverbial little guy in fighting unjust systems of power. It's not really important. So I'm just going to move us along here. You gotta do, let's all be working as best we can to like make this better place than to put the pressure on these corporations to change because all of us massively putting pressure on people is how things change for the better, hopefully. But, like, it's like with Bilbo. <laughs> he has to really spend some time in the party of dwarves, working, saving them, building his credibility uh-huh. before he's comfortable enough taking that big risk of being like, I don't agree with what Thorne is doing. I'm going to take the Arkenstone mm. and go to Bard and try and make this change. The little guy of the company yes, making change happen. It's a very good comparison. <laughs> I... <laughs> Thank you. 
I felt so pleased with myself when I thought yeah. of it. I mean, I think that does get back to Bilbo's character development from the hapless bystander to someone taking action, recognizing an opportunity to take action, knowing it's going to hurt him, whether physically, Thorin does threaten to throw Bilbo off from the top of the wall and basically just smash his body on the ground. But also just the personal risk of like losing friendships, losing out on Mm -hmm. his share, because that's the kind of exchange they agreed to is that Bard will give back the Arkenstone for Bilbo's 114th share of the treasure. There's a lot of personal risk that Bilbo takes in that moment to try to rectify things and prevent disaster. Of course, it doesn't work out. And I think Bilbo in the book is really down on himself, thinking that, like, in fact, it made things worse. But I think you could argue that it bought everyone time. And it's also that Bilbo told the elves and men that Dane and the dwarves were coming, so they were ready. And so that kind of also bought themselves more time where rather than just being immediately sneak attacked by the dwarves, they send three dwarves to parlay with the elves and men. It's all just kind of buying time until the a wizard's never late, nor is he early. And the precise moment when they're about to battle is when the goblins show up and Gandalf stands up and is like, hey guys, fight the goblins. And Bilbo in his own small way, makes change happen. Which just goes to show that uh, Pixar. (laughs) I will take Pixar. But (laughs) anyway, are there other things that you would like to discuss? Because I want to talk more about Gollum. I would just like to say, before we go into Gollum and the Riddles, which truly is, I think, along with this mouth scene, the best scene in the book. One of the things I understand, Tolkien, I understand you're out here and you just really, 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 really love to write poetry. (laughs) I get it. The songs, some of them have a point and are good. Some of them do not need to be there and need to go in a fire and die. I'm sorry. Part of the problem is that like songs are just not enjoyable if there's no without music. music. Yes. The number of songs in this book, ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And you only get something from like three, maybe four of them. So, you know, just going along with uh, sometimes me and me and Tolkien don't don't get along. One of the things we don't get along about is he just really likes writing his little songs. I'm like, please stop. Please stop interrupting the flow of the story to do this. You know, not everyone likes music. What is up with people who don't like music? Probably the best one is where they sing about the Lonely Mountain and yeah. what they've lost, which is probably the best thing to come out of the Hobbit movies because that song is just so haunting. They they did a fantastic job with that. And the, the it's basically a poem in the book. It's haunting. The pines were
like torches blazed with But sprinkled in with that is a song about breaking Bilbo's plates. And there's a song about elves just being holes to the dwarves. And there's a song about rolling the barrels into the river that takes up on my version almost the entire page. You know, everyone in Middle Earth is just freestyling all the time. It really is a musical. Yes. Everyone just breaks out into into musical numbers. And it's it's ridiculous. They just come up with them on the spot. And I'm like, okay, I'll buy like one or two people. Like Bilbo and Gollum have their whole riddle contest. And they're both very quick on their feet. So I'm like, okay, if Bilbo spontaneously breaks into a song upon returning to Hobbiton, okay. Is it necessary? No, but okay. But, like, every single person is able to come up with songs tailor-made to the occasion on the spot. Tolkien, just because you're out here (laughs) doing amazing translation work on Beowulf Uh and really, you know, rocking it out in terms of some of your language, the rest of us aren't like that. And we can't just come up with poetry on the spot. So please understand, even in your fantasy universe, (laughs) like... Some people are just bad at that. If you transpose the world of Middle Earth to today, it'd just be so many teenagers on YouTube doing their uh-huh. emotional ballads that and they and it's just very poor video and audio quality and they all sing that same breathy way. It's like oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically the world of Middle Earth, apparently. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> Now we can move on to Gollum, now that I've complained about that. I just had to get it off my chest. I'll try and shut up about it for the next three books. You can complain all you want, but this is just a side note. But I do think in the Lord of the Rings books, at least in the versions I read as a kid, they also include the elfish form of the songs, which linguistically is really interesting because you have this kind of Rosetta Stone that allows you to translate if you really want to. (laughs) But for people who aren't obsessed with linguistics... (laughs) Anyway. Yes, the scene with Smeagol. What's fascinating to me is that that is the only scene where Smeagol appears. But by far, it is the most famous chapter in this entire book. And I will say, the first Hobbit movie actually does a decent job with this scene, from what I remember. And I do actually recommend you specifically just like go on YouTube and look up the scene. Yeah. Don't watch the rest of the movie. Just watch the scene. You know, you were talking before we went on our rant about Pixar. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about how this book has a hard time finding the line between adult and children. And mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion, this scene is probably the most masterful one in writing that line. Mm. Yes, agreed. It is fun, clever riddles where, as a kid, you can participate in trying to think of the answer yourself. But also, it contains the very dark undertones that if Bilbo loses, he's going to get eaten. But at the same time, it's almost like comically dark in the way that fairy tales can be. In reality, that's horrifying, but it's just so out there that you almost can't take it seriously. 
kids and adults can have fun with it and approach it in whatever way they want to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's definitely got that creepy that I think that's sort of safe creepiness. It also just, yeah, in terms of the fairy tale aspects of it, because it is very, very fairy tale, um, which I think they actually reference within the scene itself, where Bilbo's like, he knew this, like, riddle game oh, yeah. was, like, a thing <laughs> they're supposed to abide by. And then Gollum's like, haha, no, gonna get my magic ring and kill you. Because things don't work like in the fairy tales here. Uh, it, it was so charming. Stupid fact, Hobbit. I say charming, and I mean that in, like, <laughs> it's really disturbing. But in the best way. And just them going back and forth, too, especially I enjoyed after the riddles, when Gollum has figured out what's in Bilbo's pocket, he's pretty sure. But Bilbo does not want to say. Oh, yeah, that's great. And so that looming sense of dread of, like, who is going to win that little argument is also spectacular. Yeah, there's they both have to kind of, like, play this other, almost like its own riddle of itself of, like, do I take them for their word or are they trying to do something else? How is... Bilbo being a tricksy hobbit, how is Gollum going to try to eat Bilbo anyway? The stakes are really bouncing back and forth, and it's delightful. And I think, too, I um couldn't remember from like my long-ago reading of the first two books of Lord of the Rings the extent to which Andy Serkis made up Gollum's dialect or not. He does not. It is straight on the page, and like, I think Gollum is the most distinct, by far the most distinct sounding character in this entire book. He immediately is present as this creature through his dialogue, but also through like the hints at his mind you get. Unlike some of the other characters who feel very indistinct, he feels immediately like real and alive and present in a way that helps the scene come to life. And you get too. what I like is that you get the riddles and then you get both of their thought processes. They're trying to figure out the riddles or make up new ones. So it's interesting the way you kind of get to bounce back and forth between the two of their right. heads. And quick side note, I did not know that Gollum was supposed to be referring to himself with my precious. Yes. I thought he was constantly talking to the ring. New things I yes. learned. <laughs> I think it is one of those things because this is probably better saved for the Lord of the Rings discussion, but his identity with the ring is somewhat inseparable from Gollum. Mm. The my precious is kind of, it almost operates as wordplay where it both refers to Gollum and the ring, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more later when we meet Gollum again in later books. But it's fascinating because he is very distinct and I, and I love when you see their thought processes that you get a sense of what they value and what they know. Bilbo is making riddles that in some ways refer back to things he's knowledgeable of his experience in Hobbiton in the Shire. And there's one riddle that Gollum makes where the answer is fish. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, that's because Gollum eats a lot of fishies. You know, you get clued into what their world experiences are and the work they have to do to almost kind of like empathize with the other character in this scene. That's like the most fascinating bit of this because the lead up to meeting Gollum, Tolkien describes this cave system in this like 
it feels very primordial. He talks about these creatures that lurk there and everything is just very primitive and, and they will eat you. And so we're told all this and then Gollum arrives and he's described in a very similar way. His eyes are very bulbous. He's fish-like. He's creepy. He talks like a freaking weirdo. But at the same time, the scene works so hard to humanize him. And I think that's where the revisions come in and work really, really well because we get hints of Gollum's background and learn that he wasn't this monster that we've encountered here always. There is a different version of him. And you sort of see the description of his relationship with the ring and how harrowing it is where like he used to wear the ring all the time, but then it just became too much. It became painful to wear it. And so he would take it off and like keep it in his pocket. But then even that was too much. And so he kept it on his island and would come back to it. And, and I think it's wealthy symbolism in that way. Just how much of a hold this ring has on him that even though it causes him misery, he can't get rid of it. And so you have all these things that in the end of this chapter where Bilbo has a choice to either kill Gollum or jump over him. He chooses to jump over him. He chooses to take pity and show mercy to Gollum. And you're kind of there with him because Gollum is just this sad creature. You can feel the sense of tragedy around him. So when Bilbo decides not to kill this literal monster, you're there with him. And that, to me, is just a remarkable piece of storytelling in the course of one single chapter. Tolkien, who knew? He's a very good storyteller. (laughs) Shock of shocks. I told you today, I'm still the greatest of all time. It's just so masterfully done. Tolkien just does so much work to set him up and really get you involved in this character. I don't think you really see that that often in fantasy, especially the most abhorrent monstrous creatures, the villains aren't built up in this way we haven't talked about it yet but like i think it's worth mentioning that tolkien is christian very devout person and if you read this book you wouldn't necessarily pick up on that but i do think that there are tenets of christianity that clearly inform the work and if one of those is the idea of mercy and compassion riddles in the dark is just a tour de force of what that looks like applied in the most extreme circumstances. C.S. Lewis, pay attention here. This is the way you do it. We don't need to rehash that whole thing, but I do think that (laughs) it's just such an effective way of showing Gollum as a character and, and applying, if you wish to read into it in this way, and I think there's definitely room to do that, you can read Christian values into the scene and see how they work and have a deeper appreciation for the value of those beliefs. Okay. Gonna, I, I agreed with most of what you said. I'm going to quibble with a couple of things. Just, uh, you said like, you don't normally see this in fantasy. I would agree for many years. You didn't, I think the past 20 or so years, mm-hmm. we've really seen another renaissance of fantasy. And so I think you are seeing more like monstrous creatures get treated with like some degree of sympathy or empathy. 
there's definitely more of that coming back. It's it's interesting the ways in which there are things that got pulled from Tolkien that made up so much of classic fantasy that were that were just ripping off Tolkien. Um, but the things that they didn't rip off that I think only now are starting to come back into the genre is a, is a really interesting thing to see, that being one of them. But uh, Quibble 2, I guess, I think the stronger place you can read Christianity is at the very end of this mm-hmm. book. Because that was where I was like, ah, you are a Christian, aren't you, my good sir? Thank you very much for your concerns, sir. But he does not need your religion. He has science and socialism and birthdays. Haven't you heard of evolution? Not that you can't obviously read Christianity into the scene, because uh, you laid out a very good case for it. But I think you, you do have to work harder for it, if that makes sense. But at the end, when they're talking about the prophecies and how, like, they've accidentally made some of the prophecies of, like, Lake Town happen. And there's something about, like, fate and divine influence and stuff there where I was like, hmm, religion. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's, to kind of go back to Riddles in the Dark, um, there's a reason why... When Tolkien was creating Lord of the Rings, like, I don't know what his exact process was. I'm sure somewhere that's been documented because I feel like everything to do with the series has been. But like, I don't know if he was like, huh, like already had the next story in mind by the time he finished this one. Or if he was like, huh, I want to write something else. What can I do? My instincts would be that it was the latter, and then he thought back to this scene, which clearly he seems more invested in this character interaction than he does in pretty much any other character interaction. And how much of that is the rewrite or not, of course, I don't know. I haven't read the original. But like, uh, there's a part of me that wants to think that he was so captured by this scene that when he was thinking, what do I want to do next in this world? He turned back to the scene and was like, huh, I want there to be more to come from this. I want this to basically be the genesis point for my entire next series. If that scene doesn't happen, Lord of the Rings does not happen. I agree, because I think that it creates that contrast between Bilbo and Gollum, where in a lot of ways, they're very similar as characters. They're Mm. on like the surface level. They're both clever. They're both Thieves. thieves. And then there's the deeper history that Gollum was originally a hobbit. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry. (laughs) And in a lot of ways, it shows that like what could be with Bilbo. And since Bilbo plays this kind of everyman, in some ways, we can also read that scene of like what we could become if we were put into these kind of circumstances. And I think that's just an incredible bit of empathy that really spells out the entire Lord of the Rings saga after this, especially the the most interesting parts of, of that saga. But I can say, I can tell you a bit of what Tolkien's process was after writing The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. After the success of The Hobbit, his publisher came to him and said, you should write a sequel to this book. And so (laughs) Tolkien pitched The Silmarillion as a sequel. And the publisher's like, what the f*** is what? No, do another Hobbit, you f***ing idiot. And (laughs) And so he's like, oh, okay. And so he then went on to write Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's basically what happened. Poor baby. He worked on the Silmarillion his entire life, and he was working on it post-Hobbit, and then he put it aside when it wasn't 
quite working. And the publisher was like, no. And then he went with Lord of the Rings. But Morgan, I think you're completely right. Without this chapter, there is no Lord of the Rings. And that is just fascinating to think about in this one chapter that really outside of Bilbo getting the ring is not relevant at all to any of the story. It's just fascinating how that became the fulcrum point for the everything. <laughs> Which I think is like part of, I mean, Tolkien's whole like philosophy is that sometimes the most insignificant people and moments, things mm-hmm. can have the biggest impact. The rest of this book also probably doesn't happen without this scene because like Bilbo needs that yes, ring. Yeah. He really needs that ring. But for sure, this encounter beyond just getting the ring, which he could have gotten anyway, right? The encounter with Gollum definitely has a huge consequences for the Lord of the Rings, where we continue to get some time with Gollum. But like, also, I think there's something about this is the first moment in the adventure Bilbo has has really been on his own. Mm. He's like briefly on his own with the trolls, but that doesn't really count. Like, because Gandalf comes in to save the day, and the rest of the dwarves show up. Like, it's he's only there for like two seconds, but like this is the first time he's on his own, and he has to make his way back to the party. And so, this defeat of Gollum is his first first step in his journey towards becoming the Bilbo he will be at the end. Even though, yeah, it appears unconnected and insignificant, it's very much Bilbo learning to use the skills at his disposal, which he will continue to use for the rest of the book. Like, his wit, his cunning, his stealth, which, like, we are told hobbits are just naturally very stealthy. So once he gains the ring, he's just super stealth mode. You have a very, very special power. You are going to murder so many human people with this. But yeah, there's just, there's a lot to this scene. There's a lot you could do with it. God, and just even the world building within the scene, because you now know that this is a world that is filled with characters like Gollum. And so you go Mm. forward in this book thinking oh will they run into another character like Gollum will they run into another character that is as dynamic and interesting as Gollum and so it kind of gets you excited as they're going on this adventure you're like what's around the corner what's at the next bend what's over there and that's incredible to create that mindset in a reader does it pay off as well as it does with Gollum here no with perhaps the exception of Smog. But you just get a sense that this is a world where anything can happen. It's just an incredible bit of world building that takes you on a ride through the imagination. And there's a reason why these books are still so beloved today. There's a reason why every fantasy writer, without fail, has to acknowledge Tolkien in some way. He he is the Mount Fuji. You, you just... You can't get away from not just only the type of world he's created, but just the way he perfected those techniques of world building. Oh, I'm just so excited for the rest of this book series, Morgan. I'm so <laughs> there. There are scenes I remember in Lord of the Rings that I'm so excited to talk about with you. We're going on a God <laughs> adventure, Morgan. I am too. I am pumped to actually be rereading for the next time and seeing, you know, what comes back to me and 
Also, yeah, just getting another view of uh, characters that I love from the movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and getting reacquainted with their book selves. And I'm excited to see Frodo. It's it's going to be a good a good reunion for me, I, I hope. As Aragorn says, There's always hope. With that, I guess it's time to say goodbye. It's uh, three and a half hours later for us. Hopefully less than that for you. But we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. Hasta la vista. Bye-bye. Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall.